History happened everywhere. A random country, a random time period, and a topic pulled from the hat. Then one of us has a week to go away and find out everything they can. Welcome to... History happened everywhere. History Happened Everywhere with me, Pete Goddard, and him over there, Ryan Weir. Hello! Uh, it's the first week of a new year, 2021. Happy New Year, Ryan. Happy New Year to you, Peter. So, any New Year's resolutions? Ooh, uh, yes, I have. My New Year's resolution is to travel more. I know that seems a bit redundant. Yeah, <laughs> probably probably not down. in the very near future, but uh, <laughs> the time will come, I'm sure. Yeah, I want to jump on a plane and travel somewhere. I want to not be in my flat anymore. I think that sounds like an amazing idea. I, I once did a round-the-world plane ticket. Did you? Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, when Are you Phileas Fogg? I am. It took me less than 80 days, in fact. So, <laughs> if anything, I'm better than Phileas Fogg. I think I got a round the Essex bus once, and it just sort of went to Chelmsford in Colchester, and uh, which is almost as exciting um, as a round the world plane ticket. I mean, what haven't you seen of Essex? You have to ask yourself. <laughs> I've seen all of it now. <laughs> so uh, you've had a week, obviously. Uh, how's your week been? Uh, it's been really good. I've spent a lot of time researching. Liechtenstein. Yeah, you did have an extra week, of course, which was courtesy of me. You're so, so kind. Thank you so much for taking my week up. Yeah, so uh, Should we have a little look back <laughs> last week, see what it is you had to look into? Yeah, let's rewind time. Okay, the Dursleiter is awake. And the country for me next week is... <laughs> Liechtenstein. Wow. Well, let's have a look at so the... There's, uh, there's Liechtenstein. <laughs> History happened everywhere, Ryan. We know this. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So let's go with the years then. Uh, okay. Here we go. And the years are... Uh, right. Well, we're continuing the medieval stage. It's 1100 to 1200. Ooh. So uh, it is Liechtenstein... Between the years of 1100 to 1200. What is the topic, Ryan? <laughs> the topic is... <laughs> going to be... Oh, no. Space. <laughs> Something crazy. <laughs> and the topic is... Business. Ooh. That's the first time we've had business. That is. Uh, okay. I'm thinking already. Good, because you have a week to keep thinking and come back and entertain <laughs> me for a solid hour. <laughs> Okay, so Ryan Lichtenstein. <laughs> yeah, it is. This is the third part of our Alp Trilogy. <laughs> the famous Alp Trilogy. Uh, yeah, we've had Austria for the past two weeks. And uh, this week we're going to remain within the Alps themselves. And we're going to talk about a very tiny, weeny little country called Liechtenstein. Or is it called Liechtenstein? Or is it called... <laughs> Liechtenstein? Liechtenstein. <laughs> No. Yeah. Uh, in Liechtenstein, uh, it's referred to as Liechtenstein. They don't call it Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein. Where they live. 
Yeah, that's right. Liachtashta. Liachtashta. Are mm. we going to try and uh, maintain that throughout? No. <laughs> no. Uh, we're going to swap between the German, which is the Liechtenstein, and the Western, which is more Liechtenstein. Okay. Because I can't settle on one of those two. Okay, so let's just start with a blanket apology to everyone we're about to offend with various pronunciations everyone of your country. Everyone from Liachtashta. Yes. So it's officially the Principality of Liechtenstein. Ah, Principality. What Do we know what a Principality is? Yeah, I should have looked that up. <laughs> <laughs> Not off to a great start. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to be a long episode, everyone. <laughs> Strap in. Here we go. Right. Where is it? It's in Europe. You know Europe? I'm aware. Are you aware of Italy? Yep, big fan. You know, it's like a boot shape. Yes, it is. At the very top of the boot... Uh, is the Alps. Thigh high. Yeah, the thigh high boot. Yeah, it's like the Alps. On the inner thigh. And you go just slightly north of that and you've got Austria and Switzerland. Yes. And sandwiched between the two, betwixt the two, you find a very tiny little area of land called Lichtenstein. It's one of only two double landlocked countries in the world. And what... Pray tell, is a double landlocked country. So a landlocked country is where you ain't got no sea on either side of you. So none of your borders are touching the sea. Yep. And a double landlocked is where none of the countries that surround you also touch the sea either. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're double landlocked. Uh, any idea what the other country is? Uzbekistan, that's right. Oh, that was, I'm glad you didn't wait for me to get that. <laughs> uh, Two thirds of the country is mountainous. It is unsurprising for the Alps. Well, yes, quite. Uh, it rises to a maximum height of about 2,599 metres. That's five empire states on top of themselves. Wow. Anyway, the, uh, you, you picture Liechtenstein, you're going to picture mountainous regions, so peaks covered in snow, lower slopes covered in pine forests, beautiful wildflower meadows. Mm, do we have lakes? Uh, no. Oh. Well, there is one lake, but it's super tiny. It's more of a pond. Oh, okay. So I'm not going to account for that. But we will be talking about a lake at some point. Think Sound of Music. Can I think Heidi? You can. Okay, I'm thinking sure, Heidi like. and the Sound of Music. I mean, this is the thing, right? It is sandwiched between Austria and Switzerland. So if, you, if you're thinking of either of those, you're, you're onto a winner. The River Rhine, the Rhine River, runs the length of the country, um, south to north, on its way to Lake Constance. We were talking of lakes there, that, uh, also known as Lake Obersee, Obersee, which means upper, upper lake, which is a bit weird because it's at the southernmost point of the lake. It's the third largest freshwater lake in Europe, and you could fit 71 Lichtensteins in Lake Constance. In the lake? In the lake itself, oh. yeah. It's that big. It's pretty huge. Uh, so Lichtenstein is a micro state, as we've said, very small, Europe's fourth smallest country. Can you name the other three? Monaco? Correct. Number two. Other places. Vatican City, number one. Oh, of course. And San Marino, oh, number yes. three. That's exactly right. So, uh, yeah, fourth smallest country. It's 62 square miles or 160 square kilometers. It's teeny. How do you even make a country so small a country? Well, I guess we'll maybe find out. I'm hoping we will. Uh, how many Lichtensteins to a France? I know you're dying to know. I'm dying to guess. Go on, go for it. 120. I mean, you're way off. Cold, 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 cold. Okay, then I don't want to guess anymore. <laughs> I've looked silly already. <laughs> <laughs> it's 4,024 Liechtensteins oh, in a France. That's a lot of Liechtensteins. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, the population in 2020 
is just 38,000 people. Wow. 38,000 people live there, of which in the capital city, which is called Fidus, uh, there are 6,000 residents. Oh, um, really? I kind of had in my mind it would just be one big city with a few outlying no. people. Oh, okay. No. Uh, in fact, the, it's not even the largest of the towns. The largest municipality is Shan in the north with 6,500 residents. So just wow, slightly so even larger. that's still pretty, pretty tiny. It's pretty small. Yeah, Fadus, a capital city. It's home to the prince and the government, uh, as you might expect in a capital city. Uh, there is no, it's the only country in the world, well, no, sorry, the only capital city in the world that has no airport or train station. No train station? No train oh, station even. Wow. That's... You want to get there, the closest you've got to go is to Zurich, uh, which is 120 kilometers away, and then, I guess, bus it. Um, you mentioned a prince. I think that it may be the definition of a principality. Yeah, probably, right? Because we makes have sense. a prince of Wales, don't we? Yeah, principality. That makes sense. German speaking, Swiss German. Um, it's unsurprising have... in a place called Liechtenstein, isn't right. it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the currency is Swiss francs. Oh, right. So they're sort of slightly adopted by Switzerland. They, have a little, they touch a little bit of all the stuff that's going on. But yeah, German speaking, Swiss German. Uh, they have a semi-constitutional monarchy headed by the Prince of Liechtenstein. And go and ask me what a semi-constitutional monarchy is. So, Ryan, I was wondering, mm. um, regarding semi-constitutional monarchies, <laughs> yeah. what are they? I don't know. <laughs> no, I do know. Uh, <laughs> this is one I did look up. Because <laughs> I knew you were going to ask. I didn't understand. I didn't guess that you were going to ask what principality was. Uh, right. A semi-constitutional monarchy is power shared between a democratically elected prime minister and a monarch. So they have... Oh, like, so the prince has say. a bit of heft. Oh, yeah. Okay. Big time. Unlike our mob. Uh, mob, yes. Uh, the monarch, uh, the prince uh, of Liechtenstein, one of the wealthiest in Europe, uh, wealthiest monarchs in Europe, worth about three or four billion. So I wonder why he isn't a king then? Uh, well, again, we'll come to that. Okay. I'm looking forward to finding it. Yeah. Uh, Liechtenstein facts. I'm interested. Uh, licked me. Oh, no, yeah. don't. <laughs> <laughs> I regret that immediately. I'm licked you right, right good. So, facts. Number one, they make 20% of the world's false teeth. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's the thing. If you're a microstate, you've got to find a niche, right? Yeah. <laughs> false teeth. I don't know how they choose. It's a lot of false teeth. I can respect that. So, if you've got false teeth, there's a good chance that they might have been made in Liechtenstein. Women couldn't vote in Liechtenstein until 1986. 86? Yeah. Good a bit late, wasn't it? Uh, famous in 2011 for putting the whole country on Airbnb to rent um, for forty thousand pounds. That's seventy thousand dollars a night. So you could you could rent the entire country. So you could just what just wander around and say I'm going to stay here tonight, and someone That's would a, have to go. Yeah, I guess you could stay. It <laughs> doesn't quite work that way. I think you stayed in the castle, the castle in Fadus, uh-huh. and yeah, you you just got treated essentially the prince for the the day or the princess for the day and how but much you, again you got, sorry there was like a ceremonial you get given a key to the country and you could pretty much do whatever you want wherever you go you're allowed in and you can do what you like but yeah you don't kick everyone out of Liechtenstein. <laughs> <laughs> just sit by the border waiting for you to get your your night out of the way i'd kind of be inclined to do that i could pick up my key and go right you lot get out this is my country i've rented this <laughs> this is mine <laughs> i understand it's not available to rent anymore oh, so i can only imagine the last tenants Wrecked the place. It was that party they had, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was a real rager. <laughs> it all started, I think, because Snoop Dogg wanted to rent it for a, a pop video or a music video or a rap video or a hip hop video, whatever Snoop Dogg does. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag down with the kids. You can find us on Twitter and MySpace. <laughs> Hello, fellow kids. Uh, right, their national anthem. 
Do you know the national anthem? Uh, is it Liechtenstein, you're the best. We love you because we like dentures. <laughs> I'm just speculating slightly there. It's not, no. It goes a little something like this. Hold up, mate. That's uh, the thief, that. That is uh, the national anthem for the United Kingdom. Weirdly, uh, in America, it's known as My Country Tis of Thee, and they also use it as a patriotic song. Oh, there you go. So they nicked our anthem. Well, yeah, and it caused... Or did we need that? <laughs> I should probably a little bit acknowledge con- the possibility. It's <laughs> yeah, entirely possible. Uh, yeah, it caused a little confusion. There was a football match between Northern Ireland and Liechtenstein where both of the national anthems were played prior to the game. But of course, it was the same anthem. Uh, right, history of Liechtenstein. Okay. Or Liechtenstein or Liechtenstein. Prehistory, 5300 BC... Uh, Neolithic farming settlements start appearing in the Alpine valleys. 450 BC, Iron Age cultures. Roman times, 50 AD. Julius Caesar defeats the Alpine tribes, bringing a whole bunch of Romans to the area, under control there. Aqueducts. Uh, Viaducts. All the ducts. Mallard ducks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 100 AD, a military road is built all the way from Milan in Italy to Bregenz which is uh, is on Lake Odyssey, and it's where the tributary is, or where the river, the Rhine River starts. Okay. Or ends, rather. So that's Bregenz. Uh, you start seeing settlements in modern Shan. Two legionnaires die. Publius Cavidius Felix and Numerius Pomponius. They both die. And we know that because we found their buried helmets in 1887, which mm-hmm. had their names on. I like to think that Pomponius will be uh, favoured by Paul Dursley. <laughs> yeah, Numerius <laughs> Pomponius as well. It might be his Roman name, actually. <laughs> uh, right, 260. So 100, uh, 160 years later, ro- all the Roman camps are destroyed by the Alamanni. They are a Germanic people who then settle in the area. So we're coming towards the end of the Roman time. And we enter the early Middle Age. So about 300 years later, the Alemanni are defeated by the Frankish Empire. Ah, the Franks, yes, we call them. We do, yeah. Barbarian kingdom. Later became France. Uh, The Frankish king, Charlemagne, dies 300 years later, 843 AD. And the region is divided into three. So we have West Francia becomes the Kingdom of France later. Uh, Middle Francia becomes Italy. And East Francia becomes the Kingdom of Germany. Germany itself is then split into five duchies, or duchies. I'm sure Dursley's shouting at the radio. (laughs) He's like, it's a bloody duchy! (laughs) That's for you, Paul. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And that includes, uh, one of the duchies is Swabia which is where Liechtenstein, modern Liechtenstein is. Okay. So Liechtenstein didn't exist at this point. It is part of Swabia. And they elect a king, a German king. So now we enter the High Middle Age. This is around 1000 AD. And that German king they've elected, uh, his influence is starting to wane and the Holy Roman Empire is starting to sort of stretch itself, take a bit more precedence and power uh, from people. So 
1,100, which is where we are, because we're in 1,100 to 1,002. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the Duchy of Swabia, four houses rule. Okay. Um, and of those four houses, the Kyburgs are one. You've probably heard of the Habsburgs. Absolutely. They were one of the other houses. Well, the Kyburgs were another. And they were a dynasty that ruled in an area which includes Schallenberg and a little place called Vaduz. Vaduz. Yeah, so two territories, Schellenberg and Vaduz. This is getting a bit Game of Thrones now, I like this. The houses against each other. Exactly, yeah. So this is big down to tiny. 40 years later, so 1140, there's a family living in southern Austria, so the lower parts of Austria. They're living in their castle and they are called the Liechtensteins. Ah. Or the Liechtensteins. Or the Liechtarsters. <laughs> and they spend their time just uh, buying land, um, advising the Habsburgs, basically having very little power, relatively speaking. They're sort of middling people that just sort of hang around in the right circles. And in fact, uh, 300 years later, uh, Karl I of Liechtenstein sides with the Holy Roman Emperor in a political battle. And um, the Holy Roman Emperor says, you know what? You're kind of cool for being on my side. I'm going to reward you. And he makes him a prince, which is known as a first. A first? Yeah. So when you called him Carl the First, which is a verse. does that call because he was the first of the calls? Or is he called the first? I think he was Carl of the First. Or is the first first? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he's Carl First. The first. Right, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was pretty straightforward. <laughs> right, yeah, they... my mistake. I was just not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Carl I is made the first first prince. Right. Yeah, and he starts the Liechtenstein monarchy. It's a hundred years later when Carl's grandson, Hans Adam I, buys Schellenberg and Vaduz, those two territories within modern-day Liechtenstein. And the Holy Roman Emperor says, you know what, that's awesome you've bought those. We're now going to call this territory... Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein. So he bought these towns, right? Or regions, rather. Correct. He bought a region. Two regions. I have bought a house in my time. Yes. uh, And it's conveyancing and the surveyor comes in. What what do you think the due diligence on the purchase of a region is exactly? Sure. (laughs) You don't have a surveyor out there going, yeah, no. No, because if it goes wrong, you just bring your army and you demolish them, right? Right, yeah. Okay. So less legal team, bigger military might. Lots more swords and shields and bows and arrows, yeah. So 1100 to 1200, uh, what's what's happening in the rest of the world? What's happening? What's going on? Who knows? So this is a period where work begins on Notre Dame or Notre Dame for our American friends uh, in Paris. And uh, Oxford University is founded. Oh, wow. That is a long time ago. Long, long time ago. The Swedes defeat the Finns, forcing them to convert to Christianity. The Tairo and Minamoto clans in Japan have a big old naval battle in which the uh, results in the death of their child emperor, Antoku. Uh, Crusaders attack a transport carrying the sister of Al-Nazir Salah al-Din Yasif Ibn Ayyub. Sorry, who was it? <laughs> uh, uh, Al-Nazir Salah al-Din Yusuf Ibn Ayyub. <laughs> also known as Saladin, ah, yes. the leader of the Muslim military. Saladin retaliates, defeating the Christian army and laying siege to Jerusalem. So the Christians launch their third crusade, led by a certain Richard the Lionhearted. Ah, we know him. Yeah, they reach the Holy Land and Richard negotiates a truce with Saladin. That's what's happening in the world. Okay, busy busy time for battles and knights and uh, the beginning of Oxford. Oxford University, that's an interesting one. Hmm? And Notre Dame, you think of these... So these 
buildings and it's hard to imagine them being new you know it's like look look what we just built they have a sense of permanence about them don't they what gets me oxford university was a spin-off it was um a spin-off of the paris university so paris university i think is older although i've heard before that oxford university is the oldest so i'm taking from this that basically oxford university is both a spin-off and french okay so Let's talk about some power. Let's talk about hierarchy. I'm going to get to business, but first of all, we need to establish what the the, the structure, the class structure is. I like the way you said power there. You said power, power. like a man who really wanted it. Mm, like uh, someone from the 80s. <laughs> uh, right. Feudalism. It's the way of life throughout the Middle Ages. Um, it's a system which basically rigs everything for the rich and keeps the poor exactly where they are. What a crazy system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it starts with kings, right? Uh, kings own land and they own land by divine right. God says, you know what? You're a king and you should own all of this land. Mm. And they claim taxes for the people that live on it. Makes sense. So they couldn't manage the land. There's a lot of land to look after. Um, so they can't do it all by themselves. So what they do is they start to portion it out to their friends and their families and you get different sizes of land depending on how popular, I guess, their friends and their families were to them. So you start getting the duchies, you get the counties, you get manors and fiefs and all sorts of different sizes of regions. The nobles, which I guess is the name for the friends and the families of the king, uh, they then function as the middlemen between the royal family and the peasants. They oversee the management of the land, they claim in the taxes, they go around and collect it all, they build armies for the king, they take their cut um, of all of that and, you know, any other revenue that's generated within that land, it's kind of on them. So the deal is pretty cool. Also, the land stays within the family by blood, right? So it passes down throughout the generations and you just build up and gradually continue to secure your power within that place, never reaching the point of being a king. Uh, meanwhile, the peasants. Yeah, my people. 98% of the population. It's a lot of them. And they are the ones that work and maintain the land. And uh, if they could pay taxes, well, that's great. They would be allowed to farm the land to make enough to live. And if they couldn't pay the taxes, they become what are known as serfs, S-E-R-F-S. Uh, and they work for free in exchange for living on the land. It's a real scam, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Now, basically, they're essentially slaves, right? So serfs were forced to work and they would be forced to work wherever they were commanded to. So you would, you're going to work over there on that bit. They could be taxed still and they could be charged for services and they couldn't even marry without permission. So they were truly owned by the nobles at that point. Uh, if a farm was sold, the peasants, the serfs, were sold along with it as part of that sale. Fun times if you're a serf. Just wake up in the morning and go, I'm a chattel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, hooray. So in exchange for their work and the taxes that they're paying, the peasants got two things in return, which I guess were kind of important. Food, pretty important, and protection as well. So all their taxes and their money and everything goes towards the nobles, and the nobles would make sure that they had an army that would protect them. But that's not all. If you're a peasant in those days, you also had to pay 10% of all your income to the church. Uh, that's what God would have wanted. For spiritual protection. Uh, spiritual protection. Just yes. two different protection rackets in the physical. <laughs> exactly. And you're like, well, at least I've got God. It's like, mm, well, about that. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's actually a really valid point. It's two, uh, two almost indistinguishable systems that, that, that play at exactly the same time. If you're a peasant, you're looking down 
two avenues, a fork in the road, you've got to pay both. Uh, and we'll come to the reason why. Anyway, that 10% of all income, that was known as the tithe. Hello, Pope's office. The Pope speaking. Pope, it's me, the Lord. Oh, God, how are you? Well, I'm bloody annoyed. I've got prayers coming in, left, right and centre every bloody second. Oh, I've got no food. Oh, my family's starving. Oh, I've got the pox. It's bloody annoying. What's going on down there? Well, 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 it's the the peasants, Lord. Their lives are very, very difficult, but they are mercifully short. What are you going to do about it? Well, well, I I could could try to address the inequities intrinsic to the feudalist capitalist system. Or? Cut you in for 5%. Make it 10, we've got a deal. So let's talk about religion. After the fall of the Roman Empire, there was a void, right, in Europe. And so Catholic Church scampered in and took up a lot of that space. And as a consequence, it became one of the largest landowners in Europe. Therefore, one of the wealthiest and the most dominant power. It has a network of parishes into almost every town and village. It starts to run those estates much like the nobles run their fiefdoms. Uh, What you've got is a challenge in an 1100 between the kingdoms and the church, who are both like trying to settle who's got the most land and who's got the most power here. And as we said earlier, Holy Roman Emperor is kind of winning that battle. Uh, And everyone's got God on their side. The king's ordained by God, the religious are representing God. Oh, no, 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 no. God's on my side. Yes, except the peasants. Okay, so bishops. What do we know about bishops? Crooks. Crooks, yeah, a bunch of crooks. (laughs) (laughs) So the power of the church is represented by bishops, okay? Uh, The Pope was a bishop at the time. He was the Bishop of Rome. Um, A bishop is a priest who oversees his own church, so his own parish, but he also has other parishes in the region that he looks over as well, like the area manager of a local store. Which must be difficult if you can only move diagonally. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The church, which the... Bishop works in, uh, was known as the Cathedra. Head office. Head office. Cathedra, then to become the Cathedral. He does report to an archbishop, which does essentially the same thing. So he'll have, he's the bishop of one larger area without other bishops, and he'll just check in on them and make sure that everything is going to plan. I've always loved the word archbishop. It's got sort of sinister overtones, isn't it? I'm the archbishop. (laughs) So day to day, what does a bishop do? Bishops do bishop stuff. Baptise babies at wedding ceremonies. They hold your last rites if you die. Uh, Settle disputes. They hear confessions. They absolve your sins. They ordain priests. They assign clergy to their posts. Bishopy stuff, right? Standard bishop stuff. So a bishop can create mini bishops, essentially. Yes. And tell them what to do and where to go. It's kind of a vampire format, isn't it? It is a little bit, yeah. If you kill a bishop, do all the priests that they ordained also crumble to dust? Yeah. 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 Uh, They also uphold church law, which is known as canon law, um, and in church courts. So these are secular problems that are are brought to them, and they're the ones that have to to resolve them. Um, So issues like incest, uh, adultery, bigamy, um, failure to perform oaths and vows, matrimonial cases, legitimacy of children, those sort of things. And they will throw down the hammer on people. But... And here's the other thing that bishops do, and what the church does, is church business. And with church business, we mean things like collecting donations and grants. So there's a lot of networking going on. 
going around to the nobility and, hey, you know what God would really like right now? <laughs> you look like you've had a sinny weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about those sins of yours. Yeah, collecting the tithe, the 10%, which we talked about. So that needs to be collected and make sure that everybody's paid that. There is farming. Um, so they were involved in the land as well, um, usually either by the clergy or you know, rent-paying peasants, so the same principle serves. Uh, and tolls on roads, bridges, rivers, that sort of thing. They got their fingers in in that as well. I'm still getting mafia vibes from this whole thing. Hey, this is church business. Well, you're not wrong. That's kind of how it is. There's a lot of protection racket, racketeering going on. So those are your bishops. They're the biggest power that are going on at the time. Uh, after that, you've then got abbots, the, the men that ran monasteries. So, uh, yeah, it's one of the most important religious... Business centres is the monastery. Um, and within our area, so on the Rhine, just nine miles south of uh, Liechtenstein's border, is Pfaffer's Abbey. Probably not pronouncing that right. Pfaffer's Abbey? Pfaffer. I, I like Pfaffer's. I've just been faffing around. I'm just yeah, going to call it Pfaffer's <laughs> Abbey. It's spelled P-F-A-F-E-R-S. Pfaffer's Abbey. Uh, and it's uh, founded by Benedictine monks in 731 AD. They called it Monasterium Fabarensi, or Beanfield. I guess, yeah, the Italian sounded Europe. much more exciting. <laughs> beanfield. Yeah, I, I guess they built it on a beanfield. Anyway, so the monks who lived there, uh, they followed the Benedictine theology. And uh, what is a Benedictine monk? Uh, I don't know. The, mm, nor did I. The cappuccines are the ones who drank all that coffee. Mm-hmm. The, uh, You're thinking of monkeys. <laughs> the uh, Franciscans, they're the ones who hang out with the animals all day long. So Benedictines, I don't know, are they bald ones who grow uh, hops and make beer and are jolly? <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, maybe confusing them with Father Christmas, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so a Benedictine monk uh, is named after Benedict of Nursia. Nursia? One of the two. Perugia in Italy. Uh, born around 480 AD uh, to a noble family. And they, he was sent to Rome to study. Where When he got there, he was so shocked by the squalor and depravity of Rome in 400 and whatever. Or 500 probably by that point. Uh, he fled south. He ran away and became a hermit. He was like, you know what? I've had enough of all this. And during the time that he was a hermit, he conceives of a religious community uh, based on gentle uh, discipline, strict morality, and a well-ordered routine. Sounds quite appealing, to be honest. I mean, sign me up so far. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I, I'll go into this in a little bit more detail. But actually, do you know what? Super tempted. I've signed us both up. <laughs> yeah, we're monks now. <laughs> yeah. That's just tradition for the show. I had to do something. I've signed us both up to a monastery. <laughs> that would be awesome. See you next year on... <laughs> silence, silence, silence. Uh, right, so, so he writes a book called The Rule of St. Benedict. And it lays down the principles of Christian community life. Several hundred years later is when the church gets its hands on it and turns it into the Order of St. Benedictine. Um, But it it wasn't him who founded the the Order of Monks. He just wrote a guidebook. Correct. That's exactly right. And it was was hundreds of years. About 300 years. So he wrote it around about 500 AD. See, that's remarkable, isn't it? Someone in a library has gone, oh, look at this book. Yeah, it's 300 years old. There's some good ideas here. We should try this. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing because it was a practical down-to-earth guide that people were practicing it. And then the church went, that looks like a good con. (laughs) We'll have some of that. 
Anyway, point is, it sort of lacks symbolism. It doesn't have that mystique of the Bible. It, it is a blueprint, a practical guide for how to live and work with other people. Um, so things like uh, listen, respect, and forgive one another. Well, I'm going off it. Yeah. Don't own material things. Oh. No Xboxes. Oh, man. Right? Okay, what else have I got to do? But you can share wealth and property instead. So you can have a shared Xbox. Ah, <gasps> Right? Cool. Co-op. Do you play player. a couch co-op? Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> that's, that's cool. So just being a monk. Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> um, and you you should treat that property with care, restraint, and reverence. So if you get yourself an Xbox to share with you and the other monks, look after it. Right. Don't just chuck the Wipe controller when you lose. Exactly. Right. Look after it. And recognize that God is nearer to you than you can imagine. It's, <laughs> it's, in it's the, almost quite, quite it's sinister thought, isn't it? He's nearer to you than you can imagine. Even imagine. Makes you want to look over your shoulder, doesn't it? See him now. <laughs> yeah, he's in the ordinary and the mundane. He's in the washing up. He's in the taking the bins out. He's in all of that stuff. In fact, he's more in that stuff than he is in the bigger stuff. Um, so pay close attention to the ordinary tasks. That's why Jesus keeps appearing in slices of toast and whatnot. There you go, because he's in the ordinary tasks. God in the everyday. So enjoy <laughs> making those tasks. And yeah, I, I quite like that. There's something quite beautiful in that i think that's actually that's really appealing to me uh i think a lot of people who sort of are drawn to eastern religions and the sort of zen type yep. thing probably don't realize that there's something very similar available here like that that sounds like a lifestyle that if you wrapped it up with a bit of eastern mysticism you could probably sell it to a really large number of hippies <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure you could yeah absolutely um anyway so the abbot who runs the monastery and his monks they aim to be independent and self-sufficient. They make products in-house, like beer, like you were saying. They make, make clothing, household equipment, see pots and pans, things like that. They'll do winemaking as well. So just general in-house products that they're making. So it's a little factory. Uh, Pfaffer's Abbey is located on the Rhine trade route as well, in and out of Italy. So there's trade going back and forward. So they would have been exchanging their goods, selling stuff, but also buying things on that trade route as well. Um, Alpine farming. They were involved in transforming the environment, right? Uh, so you've got all these Alps and the mountains around them, and they're the ones that, that convert them. They cut down the trees and they create these sloped pastures for their cattle. Um, so you get these series of vertical pastures all the way up the mountains where the uh, where the cows go. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later, something that you glanced on last last episode, actually. Anyway, and they rely on peasants and the serfs to manage and maintain that for them. To oh, okay. So they're not, the land. they're not doing their own homework entirely. No, no. There'd be too much for them to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so no, you, you get some of the others to do it. And my guess is they're probably not being paid for that. It's part of their spiritual education. They also have close links with nearby towns, okay? So they would employ local craftsmen to come in and fix the roof, do a bit of the guttering, whatever you know, the craftsmen do, <laughs> um, but also traders as well. Um, they might have employed lay brothers. So monks that didn't live in the monastery, but sort of lived in the town, just were like, yeah, I'm pretty spiritual. Um, I'll help you out. And so their responsibilities were to sort of run the more commercial side of the business. They would sell all the excess beer that they had. Um, they would then go and buy things if they needed them and bring them to the monks. Just so, like day monks and boarding monks. That's exactly right. Yeah, like boarding school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. 
Anyway, so this all meant through all these commercial business activities uh, that they're sharing a huge amount of wealth between them. The success of Benedictine business, let's just talk very briefly on that. Um, Benedictine theology, as we've both agreed, actually, is, I could buy into that, right? Uh, well, a lot of businesses across the world actually are. And there are monasteries now that are offering training courses to commercial businesses, entities, organizations, uh, where you can go in and be taught by the monks about Benedictine principles and how you can apply it to your corporate business. It's kind of exciting. Want to know some of the stuff? I do. Okay. So four uh, business principles. The first is begin with a strong foundation by creating stability. So what they mean by that is remain faithful to one community. Just stay in one place for life. Don't keep moving around, right? Just, I'm here, you know where I am. <laughs> right, these guys hate the circus, is what we're saying. Exactly, don't be nomadic. Avoid unnecessary and foolish risks. Common sense stuff, right? But it's all about creating stability. That's what you're, they're, they're trying to say. Invest for the long term, i.e. offer an enjoyable workplace. Uh, retain your staff, train them up. Um, have good relationships with your customers, but also with the people that you're 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 working with. Um, so rather than trying to win new customers all the time, try and keep the ones you've got, right? Keep those relationships good. Hold on to your values, uh, despite the pressures of competition or shifting marketplace. Make sense? Uh, introduce ethical principles. Um, by doing so, your workers' lives can be improved and see that there's more to life than profit. So, you know, they're encouraging a workplace where actually you want to work there, not because of the work itself, because it's a job to do, but because actually you're getting something more from it. You're part of a, a much bigger vision. See, I've got a lot of time for that. I think one of the things I find particularly tiresome about a lot of employers is that they have this sense that you have to, everybody there has to have a driving passion for what you do. But <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, some people just make widgets, right? And yeah. everyone has a job more often because they need a job rather than they have a driving, burning desire to create the widget of the future. So the, the thought of saying, well, actually, the benefit is in the community and your business, God is in the everyday. God is in the mundane, yeah. Is uh, quite an appealing prospect to me. It, seems, it feels a bit more honest, to be honest, than just, oh, have the passion for corporate ink. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, or, or the, just the... Um, the cynical side of business, which is, you know, an enjoyable place where let's get the, the, the guys motivated and working so that they can make us more money. You know, that this is a group effort that everybody can, you know, benefits from the work that we're putting in. This isn't just one person benefiting from it. Anyway, people are your most valuable resource. It's principle number two of Benedictine. So people of all social classes with different gifts and personalities should be thrown together in equal partnership, working as part of a team. The leader must be tender as a father and strict as a master. Uh, build a community based on communication, listening, forgiveness, and mutual obedience. And this is my favorite part. So this is this is principle number four, and I think perhaps the, the best one. Transform yourself to transform your workplace. They recommend that you spend equal time on the body by working, the mind by reading, and the spirit by praying. So those are the three things that you should focus on in equal amounts. Don't do any more work than you're doing reading and praying. I do none of any of those things, so I am in perfectly equal amounts. <laughs> <laughs> of zero.
So let's talk a bit about nobility. The nobility or the concept of nobility? The nobility. Okay. Yeah. So it's considered a class below royalty, as we've discussed. Um, it's a group with privilege and social status. It's, as we've said, a hereditary condition passed down by blood. <laughs> hereditary condition. Yeah. I'm afraid you've got nobility. You've got nobility. And your children will as well. Hooray! <laughs> Yeah, uh, which means it's basically a closed group of people that can be part of this. Uh, if you wanted in, let's say, Pete, you were like, you know what? I want to be part of the nobility. I definitely want to be okay, part well, of the nobility. Okay, well, let's see what, how, how you'd get in. So you've got a few options. You could forge documents to say, you know, oh, yeah, I'm part of a whole long lineage of very rich and wealthy people. I could Photoshop something together. Exactly. You could buy yourself in. So you could buy an exemption from some of the nobility. You just go up to someone and you're like, I'm going to buy your lineage. <laughs> but you've got to have the money to be able to do that. In response to this, they start to introduce family names and crests. So prior to this, prior to 1100s, you've got just, you are Peter, and that is it. From 1100s onwards, the families, these nobles start to introduce family crests and surnames. So I am, or you are, Peter of Goddard. Yeah, I'm probably Peter's good herd, in all honesty. <laughs> so I don't think they'd be looking at me too closely. Peter Goat <laughs> Yeah, I never put that together, but that's probably what it was, right? I don't know. It's, uh, God is brilliant. <laughs> goat herd. <laughs> so, yeah, so you would, you would require more evidence and proof to be able to uh, try and wangle your way into the nobility from that point. They were shoring up those little back doors that people were crawling in through. So anyway, the best ways of advancing your career in uh, into the nobility is networking. That's one of the best ways. So you get yourself into the court, schmooze a whole bunch of people, get somebody to like you, and then eventually, hopefully, as we've discussed, like with Hans the First, you might find yourself the recipient of a lovely little gift. So that's one way of doing it. And the other way is to have an advantageous marriage. Ah, now we're talking. a bit more likely. I could charm my way in. Exactly. I'll wash up, leave the goats behind. <laughs> Yeah. So even if you do get in, though, so let's say you are managed either any one of those four things, really, you're now a noble, a new noble without any lands or prestige. So what are you going to do? Well, what was happening at this time is private enterprise. So a lot of the new nobles were rushing into the cities because they didn't have the lands of, you know, to back them up. And they started their own commercial enterprises there. So as this business is uh, in my mind, I'm thinking sort of trading. Right. So Presumably, you've always had someone who's the blacksmith and the cobbler and those kind oh, of services. Oh, I'm talking services. way above that. Yeah, you're talking organizations. Right. Yeah. Okay. But early 1100s, the hierarchy within our area, soon to be Liechtenstein, was pretty established, right? So you had God, you had the Holy Roman Emperor or the German King, you've got the rulers of the Duchy of Swabia, you've got the Kyberg dynasty, under that you've got the Count of Bregenz. When we spoke about Bregans, that was that little port on Lake Obersee. Yes. Which links onto the, the Rhine River. So uh, the Count of Bregans, nice guy, but he has no heir, no male heir. Uh, but he does have a daughter, a lovely lady called Elizabeth. I say a lovely lady. She might have been horrible. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but she was called Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth marries a pretty much unknown fellow, a guy called Hugo II of Tubingen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, do you just say that again for me? I enjoyed that. <laughs> Hugo II of Tubbingdon. <laughs> oh, I can see why she went for him. Just for that. You'd be laughing every day. Yeah, big old belly on him, has not he? <laughs> Maybe a big old moustache as well, like a walrus moustache. <laughs> Hello, I'm Hugo too. 
Dubbington, Dubbington, Dubbington. <laughs> anyway, he, uh, because he marries Elizabeth, he inherits the entire family territory all the way along the Alpine Rhine. So he doesn't have this problem. He doesn't need to run into the city and start his own business. He is just taking what, what's been gifted to him. So he's new nobility, but he's almost immediately acquiring the sort of the prowess. In fact, within two or three generations, so presumably him and Elizabeth did the do. Uh, <laughs> oh, moving on. <laughs> and within two to three generations, his family uh, take the noble name of Verdenberg. So Tubbingdon disappears, I guess, perhaps because everyone laughed at him because <laughs> he said it. <laughs> That's it. I'm, I'm losing the Tubbingdon. <laughs> and he takes on the Verdenbergs. And the Verdenbergs are now in control of that entire Alpine Pass trade route. Pretty wealthy area. And all the estate that surrounds it, so all those mountains and everything else. We're now talking about the area that is essentially Liechtenstein. And owning a mountain. Uh, yeah, or a range of mountains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they collect the taxes, they uh, collect the tolls of the people that are traveling through, and generally they just become super wealthy. Um, enough so that they build themselves a fortress, Schloss Vadus, uh, which is Castle Vadus. And it's uh, right there, it's still there today. Um, it's up the mountain slope, uh, looking down over the town. Sensible placement. Yeah, it is. Um, but also you could see the Alps, you can see the trade routes, you can see the Rhine River. It's uh, really well placed. Uh, the walls have got a thickness of up to four metres, 13 feet. So pretty thick walls. So they were expecting, you know, potentially trouble. Uh, and an entrance that was 11 metres high, 36 feet high. Why did it need to be so high? You're showing off, aren't you? I'm so powerful. Look at me. And all that giraffe trading. And all the giraffe trading. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's on a strategic point, um, the castle, and it's been there, like I say, um, since the 1100s. It's been renovated several times, so there's only a few bits that are left of the old uh, medieval parts of the castle. Um, but it's there, and the the prince today live with, lives with his family within Castle Fadus, um, and it's so it's off limits to tourists. You can't have a little wander around, but they do have an open house garden party so it's not an open house it's an open garden so everybody goes up there and hangs out with the prince and his family and they have a big old firework display and that's every 15th of august oh that's amazing so if you are listening prince which doubtless you are sure. um ryan and i would be delighted to attend your garden party for sure uh, just drop us a line at hhepodcast at gmail.com i get a feeling like you're trying to network with the nobles i've learned a thing or two from this podcast already ryan as you can tell <laughs> <laughs> or catch up with his daughter well, yes. Also, sexy ladies out there with large <laughs> tracts of land, do write in. <laughs> okay, which takes us to the peasants. Last but not least. Yeah, these are my folk, really, let's be honest. <laughs> the peasants. Yeah, poor old peasants. So in much of the region that we're in, uh, as across most of Europe, 90% of the population are living on rural farms or villages. Okay. That's a lot of people. And uh, most of those farms are on either the noble or the monasterial. Monastic. Monastic. Yeah. Estates. So it's either like the religion side or it's like the king side. It's not your land. It's not your <laughs> land if you're a peasant. Yeah. And as a rule, most peasants were given uh, 10 acres of land to farm. Sounds a lot, but it's actually too small to even feed themselves. 
So they were given land that was deliberately smaller than would feed them and their families. 12 acres was about the minimum that was needed to sort of feed themselves and also have enough to be able to sell some small amount of surplus. So this was just to keep them desperate, was it? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, So what that meant is that a lot of these peasants also had a second occupation. Blacksmiths, the shoemakers, butcher, baker, weaver, stonemason, the wheelwright, the tanner, the tax collectors. There might also have been a bank or a moneylender. And that's usually run by the Jewish community. Um, Money lending was forbidden for Christians. Some would have had their business run from their own home. So, you know, the ground floor of their home would present it onto the street. And they would have had a little stall with a little wooden awning over the top. And people would just rock up and buy whatever it was you were selling from there. Money wasn't used, really, at at this period of time. It existed, but it was more for larger purchases. You know, this bartering is where we're at. I'll give you uh, these eggs for that lamb's leg, that sort of stuff. Bad news for the lamb. <laughs> yeah. And talking to lamb, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about farming and uh, cattle, lambs, pigs, sheep. Those are the big those are the big ticket items in our alpine region here. The farmers and the serfs would rotate their crops, rye and barley. Uh, and while they were doing that, they would also then put the cattle out to pasture as well. So the focus was more on the cattle rather than on sort of the vegetation vegetation <laughs> what would you call it uh arable crops. farming i suppose <laughs> the crops. grain yeah okay and so what they do is when they were taking these cows out to pasture they would take them up the series of uh, mountains so depending on the time of year if it was winter as we've discussed they would bring them down into the valleys and during the summer months where it was obviously hotter up the sides of the mountain they would take the, the cattle uh, up the top and that is vertical transhumance the Quality of the meat and the milk that comes from this particular area is extraordinarily good. And it was making a lot of money. Cattle production becomes an investment opportunity, in fact, for a lot of the town, the nearby town. So Zurich, for example, you've got some of the the guys with a bit more cash. Uh, They're starting to invest and they buy cattle and give it to the peasants and serfs to look after for them. Is this because the pastures have lovely green alpine grass? And That's exactly right. Yeah, it's the the weather. It's just all of it combines. For Where a cow a, wants to be. Very beautiful thing, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, what happens is you start getting these foreign cattle being introduced as well. So these investors are like, you know what? I want a better type of cow to be fed this great grass and drink this fresh, fresh mountain water. And so they start to introduce their foreign cattle in. And uh, the farming communities don't like this very much. Bloody foreign cows taking our jobs. That's exactly right, (laughs) taking our our jobs. And uh, yeah, and so what happens is you actually start to get a whole... There are several wars that happen in Switzerland and this region that were fought over the wrong type of foreign cattle being brought in and mixing. Anyway, so while we're talking about cattle, let's talk about uh, the milk that they produce. Now, we know that it's hard to transport in those days because it's hard to keep food, fresh food, cool for long enough in those days. It just goes off. So so milk is no good, goes off pretty quickly. But cheese, butter, those things don't. They travel quite well. Also, they preserve over you know the summer and the winter, right? So you can make a lot of it and you can make sure that you're, you and your family are okay. So the milk that the cows produce is called hay milk or humilsche. 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 
Yeah. Uh, hay milk. Um, and obviously that's based on the diet that they're eating, the hay, I guess, right? So meadow grass. That's a shame. I was thought, hay milk. Hey, <laughs> It was the excitement yeah. that it generated. <laughs> Look what that is. Uh, professional cheese makers were mostly women. And uh, yeah, they created over the years, you know, 30 different sort of alpine cheeses, which still kind of hang around today. They've been handed down over the generations um, and they're still out there. The, the, local to Liechtenstein, still made today, still sold. It's a local delicacy is Vorarlberger Sauerkase or Montafona Sauerkase. So are these the holy type cheeses you think of in when you think of Switzerland or are they different? No, different. Soft cheese. Uh, it's almost like a... Um, well, it's like a brie, I guess. Mm. I mean, I don't really do cheese very much, but yeah, that's what it looks like anyway. Uh, it's a byproduct of butter production. So it's made from skim milk and it was eaten by the peasants as well. So everybody was eating surakis. It's sour milk, sour cheese is what that means, by the way. Um, and you'd serve it with vinegar, oil and onions or black bread and or eaten with potatoes. So i got to say, if you had sour cheese, onions and vinegar for dinner, yeah. maybe sour not cheese. be kissing these ladies after all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so there you go. Right. So we, we, the, the, the final thing then really is to sort of wrap this all up is the markets. So you've got your cheese from your cows that are paid for by the nobles or, or in fact, the monastery that are cared for by the serfs. And this all comes together in the marketplace. So the markets sell all of that fresh local produce. You're talking your meats, your veg, your bread, your cheeses, that sort of stuff. You're, um, you're starting to sound like a celebrity chef who's gone to turn a local restaurant around. You need fresh local yes, produce. <laughs> exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sellers of meat and bread tend to be the men. And uh, those that sold eggs dairy stuff, uh, poultry, and even ale were the females. Anyone who wanted anything beyond food-related stuff, so you're talking like your your cloth uh, or wine, uh, you had to be prepared to walk and walk to the sort of the nearest town, which could be potentially days away. Marketplaces were weekly, sometimes twice weekly, but I'm going to guess weekly uh, in Vaduz because it's quite small. Uh, It was the highlight of the town, Big community event. Everybody is there from the nobles, the monks and the peasants. You don't want to miss market day. You definitely don't want to miss market day. So the peasants get to sell all their goods and help them sort of, you know, survive. Eat all (laughs) those great things. (laughs) The nobles get to sort of wander around and show off all their wealth. Um, They also get the income. It's a regular income because it's a weekly event uh, from the fees that the uh, the peasants are paying for their market stall because got to pay for the the rent of the stall right obviously (laughs) yeah um and in fact they often had it right outside their castle for that very reason um under the guise that you're protected you know your stalls are protected if you're outside of the castle yeah the word protection just continues to have sinister overtones doesn't it (laughs) you're protected if you don't do it here for the money (laughs) exactly and then the monks would come along and they would buy a few things that they needed but it was it was often only things that they weren't really making themselves so things like salt you know, they couldn't get anywhere else. Um, so they would come along. Although they saw it as kind of a spiritually dangerous journey going to the market, which I oh. found was interesting. They would well, those own... gaudy tomatoes and <laughs> flashy crops. Well, there was, you know, there was a sexy undertone to the markets as well and people getting drunk and rowdy. It was, this was a very raucous place. Um, but they would only ever go in pairs. 
So the monks had to go together. I'm guessing holding hands like little kids. It's dangerous to trip. go alone. <laughs> <laughs> and Last they, week, Brother Francis came back with too much cheese. <laughs> and they would never travel more than three days together. That's fair. I don't think I would travel more than three days to go to a market. <laughs> That's just sensible. <laughs> Brother John, we must make haste. Already our day has passed and the market is due to close. Let us divide our efforts and collect our provisions. Brother Samuel, the abbot said we must always be together in the market. Oh, but time is short and the Lord will protect. Okay then. Hello, brother. <gasps> Who are you? Are you looking for provisions? Well, I am looking for provisions, but... but... Who told you that? Oh, I know lots of things, my old son. Lots of things. Like, for example, you might like... A cabbage. I enjoy, and all the brothers enjoy all the Lord's vegetables. Now look at these cabbages here. I've got so many cabbages. I've got better cabbages round the back, my old son. Come and have a look at these cabbages. They're they're fine cabbages, but I, I must just... Provisions for the monastery, it's just more yeah, than cabbages. Look, I've also got radishes. And a brother, come come have a look at the radishes. Mm-hmm. They're very nice radishes. Very juicy radishes. Very Let me just put these in your sack. Come come around the back and let's sort it. They're very out. rosy radishes, but, but 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 no, I must get provisions for the whole of the monastery. Cabbages and radishes is not How enough. How about some honey? I know you like honey. Come round the back and taste my honey. Well, I... There's all sorts of delicious, golden, sweet honey. I think the, the brothers do enjoy honey. It's very they nutritious. It's a... Just try my honey. It's round the back, fresh from the hive. Well, maybe I'll just pop round and have a little yeah, look. Just I mean, one little couldn't be any harm. It'll be there. fine, brother. Come this way. Okay, I'll, I'll just have a look. Brother John! Brother John! Brother John, where are you? Brother John! Brother John! Brother John! And there you go. That's me. That is Liechtenstein. We are done. And business. Any questions? Business in the market. <laughs> yeah. No, that was really interesting. I, um, I, you forget uh, just how dreadful life was for most people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was truly awful, wasn't it? Yeah, no, that was... Um, it was just hard, I think. I think, you know, I, I guess you just got used to it. That was life. I'm, I'm guessing some people had it harder than others. I think most people got by, barely. The, underli- the underlying sort of challenge and the problem is that as a peasant or even worse, a serf, there is just no way out. There's, no, there's you no just can't get ahead. You can't, you don't own any of the things that you need. You can't go, I'm going to start up a business because you've got no capital. You can't say, I'll do my own farming because you're working someone else's land. You just, you just can't get out from under that, which is. And if you did get out of it, it was by exception. You know, you forged yourself some nice papers. That seems like a good route to me. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Until you get caught. So it's that time, isn't it? We've got to hit the doors later. Yeah, well, yeah, before we do, I do want to thank you. That was really interesting. Oh. Um, 
it's uh, those these older periods are, are really challenging i know and you really brought it to life so thank you very much for a very entertaining and interesting cast thank you very much uh but as you say yes we should turn to the Durs later and discover what's on the table for next week what's on the agenda the notice board. let's find out what your country time and topic are for next week how about them do it right <laughs> here we go okay ryan <laughs> What's my I, country? I just want it to be away from the Alps. Uh, yeah, really, seriously. Right? Like, no, it's I mean, Switzerland. Seriously. <laughs> the Alps is great. <laughs> Switzerland. Please, now I kind of hope it's Switzerland. Or Swaziland. <laughs> okay, here we go. Right, so, Peter, your country for next week is... Mozambique. Mozambique. Well, we've made it out of the Alps at least. <laughs> I don't know where it is. So it could be in the Alps as far as I know. Uh, okay. And your time period? I'm hoping modern. I want to go modern. Okay. Time period is 2000 to 2005. Yes. Awesome. Here's modern. And okay. So subject. And the subject is religion. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Key topic from today's subject is leached into next one. Yes, this is uh, interesting. Okay, religion. That wasn't one of those ones I was shooting for with the modern time frame, but uh, I'm sure there is something out there. Religion do. in Mozambique from 2000 to 2005 AD. Challenge accepted, sir. So, thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you, everyone out there. If you've liked everything, anything, hated anything, or just want to talk to us, you can get in touch with us at hhepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we do a daily little history fact that you can see on Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn, even if you want, all at hhepodcast. Or you can come and visit our website, which is hhepodcast.com. That's right. And don't forget our weekly after-show podcast, The Verdict, with our lovely Paul Dursley, who joins us every week to uh, criticise us and tell us where we've gone wrong on these particular episodes. So do listen in for The Verdict. So once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming. And thank you, Ryan, for an excellent podcast. Uh, we'll see you all next week on... History Happened everywhere. So, uh, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Yeah, um, I was wondering, mate, you know how yeah. I put a lot of work into the podcast? You do, yeah, work a lot, all the time. Yeah, and you, you know you don't pay me anything? Nope, nothing. No, yeah, and um, you know how I'm allowed to go in the fridge sometimes and make myself a sandwich? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was wondering... Am I your surf? Yeah, 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 you are. Oh, right, okay, cool. Um, can I still sleep in the bathroom? Yeah, for 10% of the sandwich. Oh, uh, will you take crust? <laughs>